Great to see you this morning. Um, we need to start out with some family business this morning, all right? And so uh, for those of you who are visiting today, I just want to warn you that this is family business. This place has no obligations on your shoulders. It does none, none of that. So it, it, you're in, kind of sitting in on a family conversation here that, uh, that we need to have with the Stonegate crew. And so with that, um, I wanted to give you a couple of things, um, Stonegate people. Um, one is I wanted to, to let you know kind of where we stand with facilities, that whole piece of the equation. And so we just secured another six months in the conference center, which would take, yeah, that is a good thing. That is a good thing. Yeah. And so <laughs> that's funny. It's unexpected. Okay. And so that, that takes us to the end of February. And so now the 4B board that kind of controls the reins of this place, um, they're in the process of revising their policies that deals with churches. And our hope is that that will be a revision for our benefit that would give us a little bit longer stay as we try to take steps out of the conference center into something more permanent. Okay, so that leads us to the second thing on where we are in, in that piece of the equation. And so this is the the news on that. We are in the process of trying to find land buildings. We're investigating all those options. We're digging around, trying to figure out um, what it is that God would have for us as a next step. Okay, so you've got that piece of it as kind of the move out and, and trying to find that piece. Now, the other side of that becomes a financial issue for us as well. And okay, now this is my fear in having this conversation. I just want to be real honest with you here. I know that in a church, as soon as you say money, this weird thing happens, right? Yeah. Okay. So it probably just happened for you right then. So, you know, that thing that just happened in your heart, this, this is what scares me in the midst of this. And there's a couple of reasons why I think that there is this initial, they're talking money thing that, that kind of just swells up inside of us. And one reason is because there's been no doubt there has been abuse financially in the church. Um, I mean, if we're driving a Bentley up here this morning, you have reason to worry, right? And so, so there, there is some reason on that end that I think some people could look at this and say, okay, great, here we go. Okay, now now here's what I think is the predominant issue though for us. It's not that. The predominant issue for us is when you talk money, it slaps a cultural idol in the face. And so I just want to press on this before I say anything else. If there is an, if that kind of swells up in you when you hear this, Now, I just want to really encourage you to take a look at your heart and dig into your heart on why that is. Because we live in a culture that does this to money. It's not in an open hand. And when you have anything in a closed hand and something butts up against that, we get really defensive, right? And so I just want to encourage you to make sure you're asking questions about your heart. This is what I always tell our Stonegate people, that we do not want your money. That is not the issue here. We want you to be free from the love of money. That's the issue. So we want you to live with a hand that looks like this in all of life, money being one of those things. Okay, so with that, um, this is where we are in the financial piece. Over the last 10 months, we're 10 months old, um, we have saved roughly $100,000 over that 10-month span. And that has come about by just us being really frugal. If we don't need it, like really need it, we have done without it. And so we have pushed off, you know, hiring, all of that has come later Uh, And so with the intentional effort of we know that we have to be really diligent and frugal and saving for a step out of here. Okay, so you've got that piece of it that we saved really hard. Okay, now here's the problem with the $100,000. The great thing is is that we saved that much. The problem is that when you're thinking land for a church, building for a church, those sorts of things, $100,000 is not that much. So it doesn't go very far in in this world of trying to buy land for that that piece of it. Okay, so that takes us to this. Over the next three months, what we would like to try to do is raise about another $100,000. And you say, how are we going to do that? 
This is the way. One is we're going to continue to be really, really frugal over the next forever. All right? And so we're going to continue to be frugal. And then here's what we're going to ask you to do. This is Stonegate people. If you're a visitor, this is not on your shoulders. For our Stonegate crew, we're going to ask you to get before the Lord and just ask God, what would it look like for me to give sacrificially toward that? And so that's all we're asking you to do, is over the next three months to consider and ask God, what would this look like for me to leverage what you have gifted me with for gospel expansion? That, that's what we're asking. And so that may mean that you try to do a tithe times two for a couple of months, three months. That may mean that you try to figure out, okay, so this is my savings account. What, what would it look like for me to leverage that for the gospel? And so we're just asking you to get before God on your knees and say, God, what would this look like for me to be a part of that? That makes sense? We're not after your checkbook. We want you to be free from your checkbook. Fair enough? Okay, let me pray for you, and then we'll jump into Ephesians. God, I pray that you would be very gracious to us this morning as we talk about some really relevant things to our life. So God, I pray that you would be gracious in sending your Holy Spirit, and you um, would pack your Holy Spirit into every one of these words this morning. God, I pray that you would use this morning to convict and to shape us and to mold us into the sort of men, the sort of women that you have created us to be. So God, help us. We need great grace. In your name we pray. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4, that's where we are, so if you want to go ahead and flip there. I've I've said this a couple of times, that I look forward to getting to to chapter 4 when we started the book of Ephesians, and now that we've gotten there, it scared me. Like, it's really scared me. And it's not because I'm afraid to say what Paul's saying. That the reason that it scared me is because I know that there's a natural assumption for you to take what Paul is saying out of the context of what Paul is saying. This is what scares me. And, and the reason that it scares me so much is because I love to listen to pastors preach. And when I listen to pastors preach these texts, they do it. And so if they're doing it, I know that you've got a natural thing in your heart that wants to do it as well. And so, so I want to be really diligent in just making sure we frame Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 in the proper context. So that when you hear these commands, and they're flowing in Ephesians chapter 4. When you get to Ephesians chapter 4, it's one imperative, one command after another where Paul's shaping and moving us into the sort of people that he would have us be, right? And so when you get to that, though, if you have taken those commands out of the context, it rips the heart and the power out of them. So we need to be really diligent in keeping the framework there. Okay, so so let me give you three context uh, kind of statements that will help us in in making sure these commands fit in their proper place. Here's context statement number one. That Christians are new creations. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, you've heard me say this a thousand times. This is what Christians are, right? This is the deal for a Christian. Christians are not people who just kind of get some new duties thrown on their life. Christians are not people who, who they just kind of mentally agree with a few facts. Christians are not people who um, just kind of go to church, do this whole Christian kind of thing. That is not what a Christian is. A Christian is a new creation. This is Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5 where he says, the old is gone and behold, everything has been made new. This is what the gospel does to us. It fundamentally changes the inside of us. We are born with a sin-centered core. The gospel through Christ transforms us into a God-centered core. This is what it means to be a Christian. I love these words of John Piper. Here's how he kind of states this idea. He says, conversion is the creation of new desires, not just new duties, new delights, not just new deeds, new treasures, not just new tasks. This is what a Christian is. 
They're new creations. Desires have changed. The lives have changed. The things that we treasure, the things we want on the deepest level of life, there's been a fundamental change. That's what a Christian is. Born again. That's Jesus' words. Jeremiah, the old heart is ripped out, this heart of stone, and replaced with this heart of flesh. This is the idea of a new creation. Okay, so that's, that's context number one, statement number one. Here's context statement number two. We are new creations because of the work of Christ. Okay, so it is Christ's work that does this for us, right? Okay, so, so when you start reading Ephesians, here's what you see in the book of Ephesians. We are dead in our sins. This is how we come. This is how we're born. And in Christ, in Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, in Christ we are made alive. All of that is the work of Christ. Now, when you read Ephesians 1 through 3, those three chapters, every action word is in the indicative in the Greek. And here's what that means for you, right? Uh, Okay, so when it's in the indicative, it means that we are the passive recipients of all of those action words. So just look at all those action words in 1 through 3. You've got words like redeemed, words like reconciled, words like made alive. All of these action-oriented words, right? Adopted, chosen, all of these words. Okay, all of those words we are the passive recipients of. The active agent in all of those words is Christ. That's what it means for them to be in the indicative. That Christ does those things to us. Isn't that beautiful? That in the gospel, because of Christ's work, we are redeemed. We are accepted by God. We are brought into the family of God. We've got all the family benefits that go along with that. We have been blessed, one, three, with every spiritual blessing because of the work of Christ. Okay, so we're new creations because of the work of Christ. Okay, now now this is where the gospel logic comes in. If we lose that, new creations because of Christ, if we lose this, then we've taken the heart out of all the commands. This is what frames the commands of four through six. Okay, so now here would be the third statement with context issues here, is that because of this, Okay, so, so therefore, because we're new creations in Christ, because of that, we get these commands. Because of that, the Christian's life, this new creation, it should reflect the fact that we've been made new. A Christian's life should reflect the fact that you're a new creation, right? If you are a gospel remade, renewed person, then we ought to be gospel reflecting people. This is the point of four through six. So in in one through three, chapters one through three, Paul says, this is the gospel. This is what it is. It makes you new by the work of Christ. In four through six, he's saying, now because you've been made new, this is what life should look like for you. This is what it means to live in that. Okay, this is the point. This is gospel logic. Okay, this is gospel logic. Christ does, now we do. Christ changes, now we live changed lives. If we forget this, here's what happens. And this is my fear. When we forget this, you know what happens? Here's what preachers resort to. We resort to fear and guilt. So if you grew up in a youth group, this probably happened to you. The the youth pastor was up on the stage and he was saying, be sexually pure. And this was his motive. Look at those STDs. You see, you don't want an STD, do you? Okay, now this is the result of not having the gospel as the motivator. That is using guilt and fear as a motivator. You don't want an STD, so be pure. Here's the problem with that. It's never designed to be the long-term motivator. Guilt and fear never work. All parents know that, right? It never works. The gospel is the motivator for the Christian life. 
When we know the gospel, love the gospel, live in the gospel, then we can live in the commands of the scriptures. But that's the logic. We, we are, we've been made this, so now we live that. God has changed us, so now we live as changed people. New creations reflect the new created life. Okay, th- this is the idea. Okay, so if we lose the context, we have lost the commands. The gospel. Okay, look at this. Look at me here. What we are in the gospel, what we have in the gospel, is the fuel for living the Christian life. Are we getting that? That's the fuel. So you've got to know what you have and what you are in the gospel. And that's how you live the gospel-centered life. Okay, so, so this is why in Ephesians 1 through 3, those three chapters, there is one command given to you and I in chapters 1 through 3. You know what? One command. It's in 2, 11, and 12. That command is to remember the gospel. The most important thing in life that you can know is the gospel. The most important thing you can daily remind yourself of is the gospel. Are you hearing that? The most important thing you can know is the gospel. The most important thing you can daily remind yourself of is the gospel. Now, with that context, you get to, to chapter 4. Paul starts it off, and he says, here's what, the first thing I want to tell you is you need to live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, 4.1. 4.17, don't live like the Gentiles. You're not a Gentile anymore. You're not a person outside the gospel. You know Christ. He has recreated you. Now live like it. That's 4.17. And then when you get to, to chapter 4, verse 25 through 5.4, Paul gives six concrete commands on what it means to live in the new creation. What it means to live in what God has created you to be. Okay, that, that's what's happening here in those. So, so last, or two weeks ago, we looked at the first one. Look at verse 25. It's basically, we tell the truth. You've been created to tell the truth. Recreated to be truth-speaking people. Okay, you look at verse 26. Paul says, the new creation, Christ has made you new. And this is what a new creation looks like. They're, they're the right kind of angry. They've got a gospel-centered anger about them. It's a grieving anger. It's not a fly-off-the-handle anger. It's a grieving anger. Anger that, is, anger that is mad at sin and grieving over the destruction that it brings. Defaming the name of God. Okay, now this is where we come today. Look at verse 28. We'll look at two verses again today. Two, two things that new creations live like. Here, here's the first one, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Okay, so so this is the first, or here's like new creation part three, snapshot three. It is that we become gospel givers. We become gospel givers. That, that we realize, okay, look at this, that we realize that everything that we have is a gift from God. Everything we have is a gift from God. And we start to leverage all of that for gospel expansion. So, so it's your good idea. It's your business idea, right? It's your kids, it's your cars, it's your home. Everything that we have been given is a gift from God other than your sin. That's the one thing you can claim as your own. Everything else we have no rights over right? They have been gifted to us by God. And God's saying, I want you to leverage those things for the kingdom, for the gospel, for the sake of gospel expansion, leverage those things. Now in this verse, he gives us three basic commands that kind of help us see what he's getting after here. So if you, if you look right off the top there, first phrase, he says this, this is command number one in verse 28, let the thief no longer steal. So, so it's really simple, pretty straightforward. 
don't steal. I mean, that, that's, that's the first command in this, is that you can't be a new creation. New creations don't steal. They, they don't do that. that. That is the old self. That's not who you're created to be. Now, now, wouldn't we agree that we have a culture that is radically committed to thievery? I mean, wouldn't we agree that? I mean, you probably locked your car on the way in this morning, didn't you? Yeah. Um, I, I, this was so funny to me. A few years ago, I read this um, on a New York City website. Evidently, like 40,000 bicycles get stolen. I think it's a, maybe a year in New York City. 40,000 bicycles. And I love this. On this website, this was um, ways to prevent your bike from getting stolen. Okay, this is what the website was about. And number two on that website went like this. Park your bike by a nicer bike. That, that is the number two way to not get your bike stolen. I mean, so think about what's happened there. We, we've already said that we know things are going to get stolen. I mean, we've got a culture radically committed to thievery. So here's your best option. Park your bike by one that's a little bit more expensive. They'll go for that one, right? And, and isn't that crazy? Um, retail theft is a $4 billion a year industry. $4 billion a year. I think they say that like one out of 52 people that walk into a retail store are going to walk out with something that's not their own. I think it's like every 26 seconds in the U.S., a car gets stolen. Laura's family had a car get stolen when, when she was in high school. Ended up in Mexico, right? And, and so can you, I mean, this, we've got a culture that is radically committed to thievery, right? Okay, now here's what I want you to see, though. I'm going to let John Stott kind of speak to this in his commentary in Ephesians. This is a much broader thing than just having sticky fingers, right? Okay, this is what he says. Do not steal was the eighth commandment of Moses' law. It had and still has a wide application, not only the stealing of other people's money or possessions, but also to tax evasion. And that one hurts a little bit, doesn't it? Right? Tax evasion to employers who are taking advantage of their workers and to employees who give poor service or who work short time in relation to their employers. So, so I mean, this is much wider than just having sticky fingers. This ha- okay. If you're an employee, employer in here, you know that we have a culture committed to thievery, right? I mean, you know this. That, that your work, I, I think this would be typical to say this just in general terms, that, that your average employee walks into, a, into the workplace thinking, they have paid me to show up. I mean, that's, that's why I'm here. So, so when I show up, I can surf the internet, I can update my Facebook. I can do, I'm here. This is what I'm getting to pay. That is not why we get a paycheck, right? And if you're an employer, amen, right? You get a paycheck to work hard and to leverage who you are and what you bring to the table for the sake of your, that business. That's why you get a paycheck. It's not to update Facebook unless you've got a really weird job, right? Okay, you're paid to, to benefit that business. And okay, now, now how about this one? When, when we call in... And we know we've kind of got the personal days, the sick days, all this stuff kind of working. When we, and this one's going to hurt too, right? When we call in and say, uh, I'm, I'm under the weather today. And we just happen to meet our doctor on the 12th hole of the golf course. That might fit under the 8th commandment, right? Okay, so we're talking about employees working hard. And if they're not working hard, coming, early, or coming late, leaving... It, that is stealing under the Eighth Commandment. Okay, now if you're an employee, you know this too. That many employers, probably typical, would be to pay you less than what you deserve. What they could and should pay you, right? And so it encompasses this whole wide range of issues. It's not just taking what is not yours. 
It's not just taking um, physical property. How about this one? Intellectual property. If it's got a copyright on it, that probably means you can't just take it without paying for it, right? Okay, so that brings in software, music, all. Okay, so intellectual property, right? Okay, how about this one? Reputations. You can steal something with your words just as fast as with your fingers. So so it's it's taking something that you do not own. Now, Now, here's the other side of that, though. It's also withholding something that, that is rightfully somebody else's. And, and so when you get $50 back at Walmart and you paid with a 20, that's not your money, right? Okay, when, when they leave the jacket at your house and you try it on and it looks really good on you, I mean, it actually fits. So, so they'll get it back when they ask for it back, right? That, that might fit under the eighth commandment. This is a wide command. I, okay, now listen to me. It's not just a culture that is committed to thievery. It's not just the culture. It is also the church that is committed to it. I just dare you to find statistics that would say your typical guy that comes in and out of church lives as it relates to thievery a lot different than those who don't. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find that. And Paul's saying, listen, that is not the new creation. That is not what you're created to live like. You're created to be truth-tellers, to be gospel-centered and angry in that, right? And and you're created to be gospel-givers, not takers. See, this is the ethic of the world. The ethic of the world is, let me take. This is the ethic of a Christian. Let me give. So he's saying, don't steal. Don't do that. Okay, now let me point out two quick things underneath this. Number one is stealing or thievery. It's an overflow of an idol. It's a heart issue. The re- okay, now think about this. Ask the question, why do you steal? And if you would sit in here today and say, you know what, I don't have a problem with stealing. You're probably numb to your sinful tendencies. You're just overlooking it. Because it's everywhere. You can't escape this. That old sinful remnant is in you just like it's in me. And so ask yourself, why is it that I think I have to steal that reputation? Why is it that I feel like I have to, to grab that extra dollar? And here's what you find, that it's a heart issue. In Matthew 19, this is what Jesus said about theft. Now just think about this. Matthew 15, 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft. Theft is a heart issue. It's rooted not, okay, now think about it. Theft is an external behavior, right? Rooted in internal beliefs. So it's a heart issue. The reason that we steal is because we've got idols in our heart, things we value more than God in our heart. So, so, I mean, just play this out. I mean, if you steal a reputation, why is it that you had to speak that? Well, it's because you wanted that person to feel like you were kind of had it together. You wanted to be accepted by them. You wanted to show them how much you know, how much they don't know. Like there's an idol underneath that. If you embezzle money, take money that's not your own, it means that there is an idol in your heart of money, or maybe the security and the comfort you think it can bring you. That's why people embezzle, why they take money that's not their own. That's the reason. It's a heart issue. It's the overflow of an idol. Okay, and here's the second one, second kind of implication here, is that change is possible. And I want to encourage you on this, that there is an automatic implication in this verse that it, it says, let the thief no longer. So there's an automatic implication of change can be had, right? So, so if we're thieves in here, and we are, right? I mean, you're probably in good company. Here's the great gospel hope for you. 
is that God loves changing the heart of thieves. I mean, think about that moment on the cross where he looks at a thief and says, I am offering you everything. This is the, God's gospel heart to thievery. I can change you. So I want you to see that hope. That when we think about the thieving tendencies of our heart, that there is hope for gospel change. Okay, so, so command one, don't steal. Here's command number two. Command number two goes like this. But rather, let him labor. A.K.A. work. Work equals labor, right? Hard, okay, so let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something. So, so Paul is saying, not just don't steal, he is saying, work hard. Be a hard worker, right? Th- this is what you're, you're to do. You're to work hard. Okay, now I think we need to hear these words because our culture sells us a different, a different line. And most of us have bought into this, by the way. Here's the line that our culture sells us. Make as much money as you can as fast as you can. Retire so that you can do with the rest of your life as little as you can. This is the American kind of way we try to think about life. Retire early, make as much as you can so that you can spend the rest of your life being absolutely unproductive, right? Finding you a good hobby and wasting it. Okay, so so this is the ethic of the world. And Paul is saying, that is not, I mean, that cuts across the grain of scriptures. That is not a biblical view of work and life. A biblical view of work and life is, God created you, and he said to work. This was pre-fall, right? Genesis 2.15, he looks at Adam, Eve, looks at the picture and says, listen, I put you in the garden, now here's your job. Tend it and keep it. Work. This is the biblical ethic of how we view life and work. We are to be hardworking people. For the rest of your life, you're to be hardworking people. Now, now, don't hear me say something I'm not. I'm not saying that you have to work in your job right now for the rest of your life. But I am saying this, that as long as God has you on the planet, he is going to put jobs, meaningful jobs in front of you that you should work hard at. And ladies, let me just throw this out there to the ladies. Read Proverbs 31. She is not a lazy lady. She's a hardworking lady. The ethic of the, wor- of, of the scriptures, the ethic of the Christian is hard work. We are to be hardworking people. Okay, now he says two things about it. We'll just kind of loop these both in together. Here's the two things he says about hard work. Is that we're to do honest work and we're to make a wage in the work, right? So, so that rules out some jobs. It's not get any job. It's get an honest job right? So that rules out some professions, maybe lawyers. I don't know, right? I'm joking. I always pick on lawyers. That's a joke though, right? (laughs) And so it rules out some jobs for us though. It's to be an honest job that serves people, right? Okay, so you've got honest job and it says to make a wage. Look at what it says there. So that you will have something. We're to work hard to make an honest wage. Now, this is what I pray consistently for a lot of of our men and women in here is that God would gift you with creative ideas, good business plans, a hard work ethic, that God would give you favor so you can make good money, a good wage. I pray that consistently for you. Okay, now look at my heart though. It's not so you will have more money. That is not why I pray that. And that is not why Paul says this. He doesn't say don't steal and work hard so you can have more. That's not the issue. Okay, now, now just think about this with me here. All that's, all that's happened so far is a foundation has been set for what Paul really wants to say. All he's done is just put a foundation before you. Now just think about this. If you're a greedy person, 
all Paul's done so far is said, um, don't, don't satisfy, don't feed your, your greed by stealing. That's illegal. Don't do that. But he's not just saying, so go over here and satisfy your greed by working hard. So he's not just putting bumpers around your greed. That's not the point. He's going to drill down in your heart to the depth of where greed lies. And he's going to deal with it in this next command. Look at what he says in the last part. So that you'll have something to spend on yourself, to, to, to kind of make sure, I mean, to improve your, so that you'll have something to give to anyone in need. That, that's the issue, is that God wants us to be generous givers. We're to give, that's the third command, that we're to give generously. So it's not just don't steal, it's not just work hard, it's do all of those things so that we can be people who live differently, so that our ethic can now become so we can give to people in need. That's the issue. This is where Paul is drilling down into, that we are to use all of our gifts. Listen, every gift you have is meant to be stewarded for gospel expansion. Every gift. So everything God's given you. I mean, just go down the line. Everything but your sin is meant by God to be given generously. To live like this with everything. And as soon as we clutch our hand around it and it becomes a non-negotiable, it's an idol that the Bible will call sin. Okay, this is what Paul's getting at. This is the heart that we are to give generously. Okay, now this is what he says, to share with anyone in need. So the issue with give generously is there's a reason and a purpose for that. It is for gospel expansion. Okay, now think about this, maybe this passage in Genesis 12 with me. You've got Abraham, right? Remember the story? Abraham is called by God and God tells Abraham, I am going to bless you, Abraham. Now that meant for Abraham, not for all of us, that I'm going to bless you spiritually. I'm going to lead you, walk with you. You're going to be mine. I mean, we're going to have almost an eerie relationship going on here. So you've got that piece of it. And for Abraham, this also meant financials. Now that doesn't carry across the board, but for Abraham, it did. And so God blessed him with, with this spiritual grace, right? And then this material grace. Okay, so he blessed him in both of those ways. And then here's what he tells Abraham. That I am giving you all of that, the spiritual and the physical, all of that, so you can leverage it for gospel expansion. So you can be a person who turns those gifts around and blesses the nations. Through you, what I'm blessing you with, you're going to bless the nations. That is the reason God has given you everything that you have. Everything you own. Everything that's in your house, every cent in your checking account, every bit of it is given with the intention that that blessing will turn into to generous giving for gospel expansion. Okay, this is, this is the deal. So, so let me ask you this question. Can you give generously? And it's not just give, it's give generously and joyfully, right? And can you do that? If tomorrow a need comes up in your neighborhood, can you give joyfully? I mean, I'm not talking just the begrudging thing. I've got to do it. They've, I'm not talking about, I'm talking generously and joyfully. If not, look at me here. If not, there is an idol buried in your heart that needs to be excavated. Maybe you could ask it this way. Uh, and this is where I think so many of us kind of get this one messed up. That, that we think, this is the ethic of American culture right here. You get... And if you've earned it, then it's yours. You spend it as you see fit. That, that's the ethic of American 
the way of life, right? And so this is the Christian's ethic, though. And let me just kind of press on you with this one. If tomorrow you got a $10,000 a month raise, pretty significant, huh? $10,000 a month raise. What happens to your lifestyle? Let me just ask you a question. What happens to your lifestyle? Did you know you can be broke on a $10,000 a month raise just as easily as you can be broke on what you make right now? You know that? And, and so if your lifestyle just absorbs y- your new money, it shows that we have not stepped into what it means to be generous givers for gospel expansion. If your lifestyle immediately moves to the, the bigger thing, the, the newer this, the more of that, the, the newer gadget, it shows that our ethic is just like the world. That, that we've got, so we, we earned it, so now we can spend it as we see fit. God gives you everything so you can leverage it for gospel expansion. That's the issue. This is the heart of the issue. This is it. It's not just don't steal and it's not just work hard. It's do all of that so you can be a generous giver who makes a difference in the world around you. That's the issue. Okay, now let me finish it up with this. Belief in the gospel is the only way you'll ever be a joyfully and generous giver. It's the only way. I, okay, this is one of my favorite passages in the scriptures when I think about money. Is in 2 Corinthians 8. Paul is pressing on the people in Corinth. They're new Christians. He's pressing on them to be good, generous, joyful givers for gospel expansion. There's people in need, so let's help them. Okay, that's what he's saying to them. Okay, so, so he uses what? Is he going to come in and say, I'm an apostle, listen up, right? I mean, is he going to come in and say, uh, um, kind of press on the will? Let me show you 19 slides of people dying because they're starving to death. I mean, is that, that, is that going to be his, his way to get this across? Look at how he does this, and it's going to be on the screen for you. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Mark this down. I'd encourage you to read this. This is the motive. If you don't get this, you'll never be a joyful and generous giver for the long haul. You, you can do it for a day when somebody guilt you, but never for the long haul until we get this. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know, Corinthian church, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, though he was, he had everything, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Until you get that, you'll never do it for the long haul. Until you get this, that through the gospel, God has given you everything you need, then then you'll always think you need an extra dollar. And that extra dollar will never be enough. Until you get the fact that that God has gifted you with everything you need. He will supply, Philippians 4, he will supply all of your needs. And give us the grace, God, to see wants and needs, right? So so he is going to gift you everything you need in life. Until we get that promise through the gospel, we'll always think we need more. Until we know that in the gospel we have security and we have all the comfort that we need, we'll always think that we need the, the kind of the illusion of comfort and security that an extra dollar will bring. We'll always think we need that. Until we get the gospel has given you everything you need. Everything. Make sense? Okay, verse 29. And we'll go quickly through this one. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk. So, so we're totally switching gears here. Hang with me. So the, and it's about to get even more painful, I think. So... Hold on. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up. This is verse 29. 
as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So this is snapshot number four of what it means to be a new creation. We give generously, and then here, here's the next part of that. Not only do we give, give generously, but listen to this. We speak redemptively. Our words are precious. We speak redemptively. So let me give you three things, just kind of in a wider biblical scope, that kind of helps us think about words correctly. Number one is that your words are a gift. You know that? You have been given the gift of speech. This is what John Stott says in his Ephesians, uh, or commentary on Ephesians. He says this, cows can moo, dogs can bark, donkeys bray, pigs grunt, lambs bleat, lions roar, monkeys squill, and birds sing, but only human beings can speak. Have you thought about how powerful of a gift, how, how just precious of a gift it is to be able to look your wife in the eyes and say, I love you? Isn't that a powerful thing? I mean, isn't it a powerful thing to be able to maybe look at one of your kids and say, I see the grace of God at work in you. I mean, I see how God is moving in you. Isn't that a powerful thing? I mean, isn't that a precious gift from God to be able to do that? Your words are a gift from God to you. Okay, here would be the second thing. That your words are very powerful. You know that? Your words are really, really powerful. Your words have the ability to be a sledgehammer that can crush a soul. Um, Proverbs 12, it uses this, I, I think, really vivid but good imagery of what words are. It, said, it says, basically, hateful words, foolish words, they're like sword thrust. I mean, think of that picture. A foolish word that comes out of your mouth is like taking a sword and stabbing someone with it. That's the picture that Proverbs gives in, in Proverbs 12. And then it says, though, that, that good words, wise words, bring healing, right? Th this is the power of words. If you think about the book of James, in James 3, probably one of the kind of the classic texts on words in the Bible, if you think about James 3, it, it gives these um, little imageries of what words are. It says that, take a ship. I, your words are like the rudder of that ship. You've got a massive, big thing, and that massive thing is turned by something very small, a rudder, your words. Okay, it, it's going to use a bit in the, in the mouth of a horse. A horse is a powerful thing, right? Isn't it amazing how a bit can control a horse? And he's saying, this is what your words are like. They are powerful enough to control things that are really powerful. He uses this idea of a spark or a small fire. And he says that your words are like a small fire, that when they get let loose, I mean, when they're destructive, they can burn a whole forest down. Daddies, look at me right here. Did you know that your words can burn your house down? You know that? Words have a long shelf life, don't they? I'll guarantee you there's words in your heart right now that you've probably harbored. Like there's no delete button, undo button, that you've probably harbored for years from maybe what a parent has said, an old friend has said, a competitor has said. There's, there's, no, there's no delete button. They have a long shelf life. And this is what, this is kind of the biblical context here, what words are. They are powerful. I mean, they have, like Paul Tripp says that they have power and direction, right? This is what words, they contain the power, like this is how Proverbs 18 says it, of life and death. So your words either breathe life on the people around you or they spew venomous poison. 
one or the other. Your words are that powerful. Like those extremes happen with your words. Okay, and this, this is the last thing just for some context here. Words are a gift. Words are powerful. And your words flow from your heart. Are we catching that? Your words come out of your soul. Okay, now this is what Jesus is saying in Matthew 12, 34. He says, you brood of vipers, talking to the Pharisees. How can you speak good when you're evil? And then look at what he says here. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Some of us have this problem in life. Um, I have it periodically. Maybe you're accustomed to it. It's called foot and mouth. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Isn't it interesting to watch people, what they do when they insert foot in mouth? This is the typical response. Forgive me. I I did not mean to say that. You ever heard that said before, right? That's really not a very biblical way to think about it. This would be a much more biblical way to think about what you just said when you inserted foot in your mouth. Forgive me. I just said what I really meant. That's what just happened. Are we catching that? That's what happens when you insert your foot in your mouth. It's not that you didn't mean to say it. It's that your heart, just in a moment of rashness, said exactly what it wanted to say. Your words flow from your heart. Word problems, vulgar language. I mean, you just fill in the blank with word problems. It is a direct overflow out of your heart. I'll never forget Paul Tripp um, using this analogy one time of his old family reunions. And he said, there's three things that always happen at a family reunion. Number one, um, we had a ridiculous amount of food. Number two, we had a ridiculous amount of alcohol. And number three, I always had a drunk uncle at the family reunion. Okay, so, so in one moment, his mom was kind of engaged in a conversation. And Paul and his brother um, got into a room where his drunk uncle... His mom's brother was telling a story. And this story highlighted sexual vulgarity like crazy. I mean, it was shining a spotlight on that. His mo- the mom kind of realizes that she doesn't know where they are. She goes in, sees what's happening, hears some of the conversation, rips her boys out of that room, and takes them to the car. And I want to read to you what she told them. She looked back at him as she's driving off, and she said, now I want you to remember this, boys. There is nothing that comes out of a drunk man that wasn't there in the first place. You hear that? There's nothing that comes out of a drunk man or out of you that wasn't there in the first place. What what does alcohol do in that moment? It just loosens your lips so your heart can say exactly what it wants to say. That's what alcohol does. So word problems are heart problems. See that connection? It's an overflow of the heart. Now, this is what Paul says about it. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. So he just gives a general, straightforward command. No corrupting talk. Now, now that imagery is kind of used, that same word is used to describe rotting fruit, things that decay, rot. And he's saying, don't let words that are decaying, that produce rot, don't let those words out of your mouth. That's not how a new creation lives. New creations speak redemptively. So, so no corrupt talk. And you kind of see this framed around this passage. In verse 25, it's speak truth, right? In verse 31, it's, it's no slander. In, in 5, 4, it's no vulgar talk. So, so you've got all of that, but then it's even broader than just those categories, right? Like this is what C.J. Mahaney says about corrupting talk. And I think this is good insight. He says he's referring to an to, uh, to any and all communication 
that deters growth in godliness. You hear that? He is referring to all communication that deters growth in godliness. Any speech that hinders the cultivation of godly relationships. Any words that have a, look at this, a deadening or dulling effect on the soul of another. Paul's saying, don't speak that way. You're not made to speak that way. I mean, you've been recreated, and that's the old you. The the new you does not speak that. So live what you are. If it has a deadening effect on your soul, it's not good. If it has a deadening or a, a dulling effect on those around you, it's not good. I mean, those words should be eliminated from the Christian vocabulary. That tone of word, right, should be eliminated from the Christian's vocabulary. So he says, no corrupting talk. Okay, then he says this in the next couple of phrases. But only such as is good for building up, and then skip the next phrase, we'll come back to it, that it may give grace to those who hear. Your words are intended to breathe grace onto people. That's what your words are intended to do. To breathe grace. Is that what your words do? The, the typical guy, I think, speaks about 15,000 words a day. The typical lady, I think it's like 25,000 words a day. That tells you something right there, huh? Out of your last day's words, let's just say 15,000 to 25,000 words, how many of those have had a deadening effect on people? A dulling effect on people? You know? I mean, sarcasm can have a deadening effect. It can be leveraged for really good things, but it can also have a deadening effect, right? And we've got to be so careful. The life and death in the power of the tongue. We've got to be careful that our words are building. They're imparting grace. Your words are designed to be grace imparters, gospel carriers. They're designed to be seasoned with scripture, saturated with gospel, right? Centered on the cross. This is what your words are meant to be. God gave you vocal cords that make this little weird noise in your throat, kind of come up through your mouth, your tongue and and lips, shape those words into audible syllables and sounds that people can understand. He did that so you could impart grace with those. This is the issue. And so are your words imparting grace to people? Daddies, do your words impart grace to your family? Moms, do your words impart grace to your husband? I mean, do they help him see how God is at work in him? Do your words help your kids see that you can see gospel advancement in them? Do your words help your neighbors see that God loves them, that the gospel speaks to them? Do your coworkers see that your words, do they feel the weight of your words as they carry gospel good news to them? This is what words are designed to be. This is why God has given them to you. William Wilberforce, he, um, he was the guy that eventually was responsible for outlawing slavery in England. And he was to a point just a few years into to trying to do that where he was ready to give up. John Wesley sent him a note. This is what that note said. William, if God is for you, who can be against him? Oh, that one day slavery, even in America, would be abolished. William, go on in doing good. In the name of God. Just on the verge of giving up. Six days later, John Wesley dies. 45 years later, William Wilberforce, just a few days before he died, saw slavery abolished. Even the best of soldiers 
need gospel good news imparted to them. Your kids need that. That is, your wife needs that. Moms, your husband needs that. Last two things and we're, we're out. Look at this little phrase in between the building up and imparting grace. It says, words must match the moment. And let me just throw a quick thing out on that. That it's not just speaking truth. It's speaking truth at the right time. Amen? That makes sense? So it's not just you speaking. It's you knowing when to keep your mouth shut too. And for the aggressive types in here, let me just say this to the aggressive types. Some of us speak way too much. Right? Sometimes the wisest thing to do is to say nothing. For, for the just personality type that would be more shy and more passive, when the Holy Spirit prompts you to speak gospel, be courageous knowing that your acceptance does not depend on that person. It's already been given to you in God. So speak gospel words when the Holy Spirit prompts you. But it's, it's speaking that fits the occasion. You know what that will cause you to do? When you start speaking in a way that fits the occasion, it will make you start listening to people. Because you have to know what to speak to them. You have to know if they're a legalist, they need justifying grace to come from your lips. If they're in the middle of of suffering, they need comforting grace, grace to flow from your lips, right? So you have to listen to know what it is that their heart needs. So words that fit the occasion. And the last thing, and we'll, we'll wrap it up here, is our difficulty with words should make us depend on the gospel, shouldn't it? Like, I'm going to go ahead and, well, uh, let me say this about me, then I'm going to make a leap for you. I have difficulty with words. I do. A lot of my words are meant to build my own kingdom and not God's. It's, it's, they're, they're spoken to make me look good, not to build up another. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I think your words are too, right? And you know what it makes me do when I consider my words? It makes me want to fall on my knees and say, thank you, God, because I'm so undeserving of grace. It makes me want to bow my knee and say, why is it that you would look at me with favor? See, when I consider my words, it makes me want to run to the cross, right? It makes me want to stay really near to Jesus because I'm in desperate need of continual change. Okay, now, now consider this and we'll pray. And the closer I get to Jesus, the more my words will reflect gospel words to other people. See, until I, okay, look at this. Until I know that in the gospel, God looks at me and through Jesus says, I know you're so undeserving and I sent my only son to die for you anyway. I know that your words are corrupt. They stink. Romans 5, but I died for you anyway. I know that you have a thieving heart. I know that. I know that you have this tendency in you that wants to build your own kingdom and not my, I know that. 2 Corinthians 5, but I made him who knew no sin to be sin for you that you might become the righteousness of God. See, as we start to know gospel words, then we can start to speak them to other people. Amen? Let's pray.
One of my pastor friends told me the other day that at the end of a sermon, a lady walked up to him and said, I feel so overwhelmed after I listen to you. And he looked back at her and said, uh, that is a good thing. It's a good thing. I'm glad that you do. Because preaching should make you see your need for a Savior. It should make you see that you could never do it on your own. It should make you see that you'll never overcome your thievery without the gospel. That you'll never speak redemptively without the gospel. It should make us feel the weight of our sin and the need for a beautiful Savior. So I pray that it's done that for you today. And I, I want to invite you, as we sing this last song, I just want to invite you to be able to repent today. I want to invite you to be able to, maybe daddies, you need to come up with your family and repent before them and before God. And you can use this altar, you, I mean, this front of the stage, you can treat it as an altar if you like. And if you need to come up here and repent of that, feel free. If you need to come up and repent of a heart that has these thieving tendencies, that have these tentacles all throughout your lives, now I'm going to invite you to do that. And I want you to know that the only power to change is the gospel. And so if you're outside the gospel, if you do not know Christ, I'd encourage you on your guest card, you can check the box, how to establish a personal relationship with Jesus. And we'd love to call you this week and follow up with you and kind of have that conversation on what that looks like. So God, I pray for grace over our Stonegate family. God, that we would be open-handed, generous givers, knowing that you have given us everything from our money to our mouth. You've given us everything for gospel expansion. So God, help us be great stewards of that. God, I pray that we would be redemptive speakers, that we would speak the gospel everywhere we go. God, that we would be gospel givers. And God, I pray that you would shine light on our hearts where um, buried idols have led us in a different way. God, grant us repentance this morning. It's in your good name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand with us?